Welcome to EdTech Speaks, a podcast bringing guests together to share their expertise and advice on navigating business and education in a technology-driven world. From entrepreneurs to vendors, higher education to corporate leaders, we'll uncover their perspective regarding the latest trends and technologies impacting your career or business. Our podcast is made possible by Downing EdTech Consulting, where people and technology connect. Hosted by Cher Downing, an experienced executive spanning a higher education and corporate career with specific focus on the EdTech industry, Dr. Downing is also an international and national presenter, author, and regular media contributor. Now here is your host, EdTech strategist, Dr. Cher Downing. Hi, everyone, and welcome to EdTech Speaks, a podcast where we bring guests to share their expertise and advice on navigating business and education in a technology-driven world. Our goal, as you know, is to provide you with options for products, services, and knowledge that can help benefit you or your business. I'm Cher Downing, your host, and today I want to introduce our guest, Cheryl Kababa with Substantial. Hi, Cheryl. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be speaking with you today. So Cheryl has an exciting and interesting background, as well as talking about Substantial today. So I'm going to read you her bio because I find it really kind of encapsulates everything that we're going to talk about. She's the Chief Design Officer at the Insights Design and Development Studio at Substantial and a multidisciplinary design strategist with more than two decades of experience. She's focused on reinventing the approaches of learning and collaboration in today's educational environment to help equity-centered research affirm and advance relationships between institutions, educators, and students. Cheryl has worked extensively in human-centered design with the social impact space, specializing in developing tools and methods for designers to expand their mindsets beyond user-centered design, anticipate unintended consequences, and engage in systems thinking. Her recent work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation includes leading student voice research to inform the K-12 balance, the Equation Grand Challenge. She works with their teams to provide equity-centered technical assistance to their grandees, designing the user case guide for demand-side thinking programs, and conducting extensive design research with both U.S. programs and global health teams. Recently, she launched a book, Closing the Loop, Systems Thinking for Designers. And I wanted to share this with you listeners because, as you know, we're all about the business, education, and technology side. And we look at what we always call the gray space, where those things intersect. So I was very excited to interview Cheryl because Cheryl also deals with the gray space that also overlaps with us, which is institution educators and students. So really just a formidable fit for us talking today. I'm going to let you tell us a little bit how you got started in all of this and uh, your you know passion and interest in this area. Yeah, for sure. So I've been with Substantial now for about three years, actually started there just before the pandemic started. <laughs> so um, I've had to like kind of rethink my entire way of working, like having just joined a company and then all of us basically going home for <laughs> like basically two years after that. We're a small consultancy, primarily based in Seattle, although our practitioners now are everywhere. We're pretty much fully remote. And yeah, my background is in design research and strategy. And so essentially the way I think about it is using design methods to basically facilitate other people's experience and knowledge and use it in a way to create alignment, to drive strategy, such as like business strategy as well as, yeah, things like investment strategy, product strategy. So it's kind of like using design rather than to produce specific products or what have you. It's kind of like using it to deliver strategy and kind of design how people might eventually kind of create solutions. So we work quite a bit with not just ed tech, organizations and companies, but also primarily, as you mentioned, like we do a lot of work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So I really appreciate the space of working with 
funders and philanthropists because kind of being able to use human-centered design, which is what we kind of specialize in, and equity-centered design to drive investment strategy, I think is just like, oh my gosh, it's like the Venn diagram of things that I love. (laughs) And I feel like it's a really nice way to use design methods to have greater impact in a space, specifically in education. No, and I, I totally agree with you. And what has been exciting for me and my listeners know is we see more and more startups come about as a result of the pandemic, whether it's people were home and designing the greatest widget or they decided to leave their current role. Maybe they got an opportunity to retire early or to phase out and they decided this was a great time to go out on their own. One of the biggest issues for startups is obviously investors. And it's very difficult to approach people when you kind of have a concept, but you don't really have a product. It's incredibly difficult if you have a service because you don't have a tangible item. You can't show them the actual widget. And it's very difficult to get in front of people who are truly in the business of investing. When you think about philanthropists who really are looking at where they're putting their dollars and where they're solving world issues and having impact. And so it's exciting to hear when someone is thinking about the design process, which helps these startups really think through the projection and then get in front of the right people with valuable information. We've all sat through a pitch deck where we're thinking, okay, get to the point, get to the point. And I've sat through them. I'm sure you have two where you think by the end. So what are you asking me for? I really don't understand the question. That can really impact when the person after you who comes in and does their pitch deck immediately spells it out, has the design process, has the clarity, and philanthropists are like, hey, that's what I want to go with. That's what I want to do. So it's exciting. I like your your Venn diagram because I think we all need that. We all need to find where is that spot that we love and we enjoy and that we are also impactful. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, when you work with something as big as the Gates Foundation, that's a little different methodology than working with an institution or working with a nonprofit. Talk to us a little bit about what it took to get in front of that organization and getting involved with them. Yeah. Maybe you'd like to add a little bit of context. My background in my career, I started out as a product designer. So I worked at Microsoft as well as other Yeah, basically product design organizations. I worked at Philips Design for quite a while. And so I think sort of my foundation in design was really like designing things, like whether it's designing Mm -hmm. software or designing, yeah, like experiences that go with a hardware product. I worked on like an early version of like the Fitbit, basically not Mm. the Fitbit, but yeah. For Philips, right? And so it's like thinking about design as like delivering things like screens and and what have you, like designing like the end user experience. And so it's a really, like you were saying, it's like a really different space to be using methods that are meant, that were originally designed for like designing things and artifacts for designing strategy, like investment (laughs) strategies, right? And I think essentially like the way I started working with the Gates Foundation is that there are champions within the organization for human-centered design. And so they kind of understand the process, which is for those who are kind of unfamiliar with it, it's basically an iterative five-part process. Like it's expressed as first you try to gain empathy. So that's really understanding people's context. Then you define. So like understanding people's context, what does that lead to in terms of like, how can you potentially solve for those things. Then you ideate. So coming up with a massive amount of ideas and trying to basically funnel that into things that might actually engage in that kind of problem solving and maybe also be innovative when it comes to like like technology and what have you. You then prototype and test. So the idea is that you make lightweight prototypes and you again test with like your end users. And the idea is that at every stage of this you're involving those who might be using your products and services, which is why it's called human-centered design. You're like designing with and for the humans at who are going to be using these things or be affected by your products. And then it's iterative. So you keep doing this over and over again. And I think 
oftentimes in, especially like in really complex spaces, you see a lot of weight placed on kind of doing a lot of research at first before you even like pilot something. And then it's almost like, and you see this happen sometimes in technology space too, like you're designing something to be perfect and then you release it widely like and at scale. And it turns out like, this is not at all what people were wanting or expecting. So <laughs> human-centered design is supposed to kind of offset that. I don't know if y'all remember the segue, but like <laughs> that was that like thing on wheels that honestly, like it was a solution for what? Nobody really knew what it was a solution for. And I think something like human-centered design is meant to offset that because before you make these huge investments in releasing something at scale, you're constantly testing and prototyping lower fidelity versions of it so that you can kind of save time, save money, also better understand, better solve for the people who, for whom you're designing. And I think like there's been a movement within organizations like the Gates Foundation to kind of like better engage with this methods so that they can understand the context in which their solutions are going to sit. So we started working with uh, the U.S. programs education team at the foundation. And yeah, one of the best examples of that is, you know, the Gates Foundation puts out these grand challenges, which are basically an invitation to the field to problem solve for a certain space. And we worked on one with them around Algebra 1, how Algebra 1 is a gateway course for success, basically in STEM or college readiness or what have you. Like there's all these connections to algebra and education. And one of the things that I appreciate about the foundation is that their strategy is equity centered in that they are trying to improve outcomes specifically for Black and Latinx students, right? And so our role in terms of like, figuring out directionally for a project like that, where they should go is by fundamentally trying to understand the student experience and engaging students throughout the process. So we actually did a lot of research with middle school students who fell into the sort of racial and demographic categories that they were focused on and design activities with them, conducted research with them, And as well as like interviewing teachers and people who are basically what I describe as system stakeholders who tend to be left out of the decision-making process, right? So it's like, they're the most affected, they're the most impacted by the decision-making process, but they're often not included. And so I really appreciate the Gates Foundation's like desire to elevate student voice, like in their decision-making, because that also is kind of like walking walking the walk when it comes to being more equity centered. So that's kind of like what we focus on is like really connecting the organizations that we work with with end users and end beneficiaries in a meaningful way. So and we also take an equity centered approach to that in terms of like how we interview, how we engage. One of the things like we feel really strongly about is co-design. So engaging in participatory design with students and with educators, because it feels like they have a lot to say about the process and they're actually really good about ideating about their own potential experiences. And so really involving them throughout the process, I think is really important, especially when like millions of dollars are at stake, right? Absolutely. And I think the pandemic taught us that which was suddenly teachers were thrust into their own homes, but still required to teach. And we, when we look back on it now, I mean, we literally, for the most part, went after that whole situation like there was a fire and we had an extinguisher. We did not think about, do the teachers have equipment at home? Do they have the right kind of equipment? Do kids have the equipment? We had a situation here, and I've I've told this story before on the podcast, where we had a school district who, in the best intentions, bought iPads for all the students to take home. What they didn't think about is that is the low-income district here. And they quickly realized that over 80-some percent of the students don't have Wi-Fi. Right. So basically they gave them, you know, a really nice coffee table. (laughs) 
piece to sit there. And so people had to step in quickly, you know, businesses stepped in and, and helped and they had to figure out how to get Wi-Fi to these folks so that they could get their homework done. So we had the best intention, but we didn't have all of the information and we didn't look through the humanistic side again, because we didn't ask one single child, do you have a computer at home? What does your mom and dad do? How do you access things for a child to say, we don't have one, we don't have cable. Had they asked the question, we might have had a different solution for them. And I think that is so true of everything that we do in the world. We oftentimes roll things out just assuming everyone's going to love it. And then we're so disappointed that they don't. That's why you see businesses go under. You see things come out at like segue. And then you're like, what happened to those? Where did they go? You lose ground and traction and you lose faith by your current investors when you have a product that hasn't been thought through and hasn't been tested and hasn't really been defined, will it solve a problem? Because sometimes we assume the problem is there and then we find out it's not really there when we talk to the people that are actually in the everyday situation. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really interesting to just like thinking about how common it is not only to let's say not talk to students in general, but like when you are kind of involving students in your process, let's say you like you're an ed tech developer or something, like you basically kind of seek those you have like the easiest access to. So it could be <laughs> like you're in a kind of suburban office park. So you go to the, you know, suburban middle school or high school that's like closest to where your offices are. And those are, predominantly maybe it's like predominantly white institutions well-funded like public schools or maybe even private schools and you're we see over and over again that like fundamentally students who fall in like the heavily like historically under-resourced categories and communities are like kind of left out of those processes so you're not actually designing well for them and I think the I've had examples is a good example of like Whoever made that decision hasn't experienced sort of environments of poverty in which like no one has Wi-Fi, right? They're like using their cell phones for their internet connection. And so that sort of kind of like lack of context and lack of understanding really permeates a lot of like education decision making. And so that's, I think that's why I find it really meaningful to be working with organizations who who center equity in a way where they're like, we need to totally understand these experiences in order to better design for them or to invest in those who are actually designing for them. And I think, because we always get a lot of different people in our audience. From the education perspective, I think this has been a welcome topic that they've been wanting for a long time. And I think a lot of educators, both K through 12 and higher ed, in their own classrooms, in their own divisions, tried to do this, survey Mm -hmm. our students. What do they like? What don't they like? Should we, you know, you think as simplistic as, should we add another course to your degree program? Or or would people take this course if we offered it? I mean, all of those things are, are minute steps of this for trial and error. Oftentimes we'll pilot something in higher ed or in K through 12 and just say, okay, we'll try it with one school. And if it goes well, we'll roll it out into the district. So we've had some initial thoughts of this, but we've not had consistency or formality in terms of how we've gone after it. I think now we're seeing in the retail space and in the global space, it's used all the time. When you think about customer service now and everybody has a little chat bot that talks with you the instant you open a web page, oftentimes you get a survey afterwards that asks about your experience and was it what you expected? You can tell by the questions. They're not gathering to be able to say how many people use the product anymore. Now they're gathering how you felt. What was your experience like? They want that user end experience. I was reading the other day where car manufacturers who do those prototype vehicles that, you know, they make maybe 10 and they are for the very highest elite who purchase them. Typically, there are people from other countries that purchase them. But even they have started doing humanistic design because they got on a path of saying, people want a car to go faster, people want leather seats, people want this. And then 
they found out that's not what people were looking for. People were looking for how to help the environment by maybe having electronic or other alternative fuel usages. People were looking for ways that they could have something that was sleek, but had space. So while I'd love to own a convertible, if I have three kids, that's not really a viable option. Even if it's a third or fourth vehicle in the garage, we still want that ability to be inclusive of everyone. They started looking at even how tires are made and what people are asking for. And so when you think about this, it's really becoming transformative. We're really starting to understand that bottom line, no matter what we do, technology, no technology, it all comes back to the person and the experience they're having with it and where they are at their point in life, whether they come from a background that doesn't fit well with what the project is. It may be someone who's just not had exposure to something because they've not lived around that area. They've not understood how those things work. You hear people talk all the time about when they move from one location to another. They move to a large city and they're like, wow, this is not what I expected because I've never grown up around this. I've I've not experienced this. It's that same need to be enveloped in whatever the project or the, the situation is, but also being able to be taught and to understand where you come from and taking you forward from that point. That's what I find so exciting about this conversation is you all are looking constantly at the betterment, not just the product or the equity or the investment, but what's the betterment that comes out as a result of this. And when you were talking about the fact that it can be foundations, it can be enterprises, it can be startups, how do you feel your impact is is making a difference in those as just in the short three years that you've been moving forward in this? Yeah, I mean, I think. It's kind of interesting. I kind of want to follow up on some of what you were saying about how things have shifted, for example, in the consumer space, because I do think that applies to education. But it's what's funny is, and this is why system thinking is so important when you're working in a space like education, because buyers, for example, are not the same as like the consumers or users. Whereas like when you're talking about cars and what have you, the same person buying the car is very likely the same person who's going to be using it. And so a lot of their decision-making around buying it is intertwined with use. Whereas buyers are completely a different category of people within the education space. If we're thinking about, let's say, like education products or services, those are going to be somebody who's like at the district level or in the administration, whereas like the users are always students and teachers. And so oftentimes you see kind of like a deprioritization happen at the mm-hmm. user end of the spectrum, whereas like products and services are prioritized for those who are at the buyer end of the spectrum. So what's the easiest learning management system we can integrate <laughs> and what will be the quickest to replace And that could be the hardest thing to use like for a teacher in the classroom and students might be flummoxed by like this change or this update, but that's usually not taken into as much consideration as whatever the person buying it is incentivized by. So I have an educator I use, okay, I'm not going to say the LMS that I have to use like in my (laughs) university system, but Sometimes I'm looking at it and I'm just like, how is this thing designed? I'm just like pulling my hair out week after week, trying to like figure out like why the grading, the assignments mechanism works this way. (laughs) It's like not designed for me, right? Exactly. So yeah, that's, that's something to consider. And I think to kind of like lead to the question you're asking about impact when it comes to kind of like these different stakeholders, such as like, product developers, investors, and those who are actually kind of like within the school environment. I just think like having a clear understanding of what everybody in each of those categories is incentivized by, like why are they doing what they do, is really important to having impact in the space. So like a lot of our work begins with kind of like a systems thinking analysis in a way of the entire landscape to kind of know what usually happens when it comes to product developers and not just like their own processes or what have you, 
but how do they intersect then, let's say with like school districts, big school districts, small school districts, rural school districts, um, in order for their product to be used in that environment? And then what happens then with teachers who are in that environment? How are parents motivated even, right? So like we do a lot of uh, research and interviews with parents to kind of like understand what is important to them, as well as like trying to ensure like that their voices are being heard as well. Yeah, especially like in historically under-resourced communities, you we see like product developers, et cetera, making these assumptions about parents, like, oh, they're really like checked <laughs> out or like they're not involved in their yeah. kids' education. But it's like, yeah, when you have like some parents who are like working like three jobs and like they're they're like trying to some of them trying to pay for their child's education because they're like putting them in private school. It's a sacrifice. It's like there's lots of like different reasons for what's happening and better understanding that on a qualitative level, I think is really meaningful. And so that's where our work comes in. Like we're not actually holding, we're not holding the bag of money. Like we're just, we're trying to better inform how that bag of money is used by being able to, I guess, in some ways advocate for those who are at the end user and end beneficiary spectrum. And that primarily is always for us going to be students because students, I think they just get left out of the process a lot. They have a lot to say, like we've done interviews with kids as young as 11 in our projects. And we're just like, wow, some of them are full of ideas about how their teachers could be better or how like our pro- <laughs> educational products could be better. And and I do feel like there's an opportunity to empower them in these processes. No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think an example I'll share is I talked with a school district a couple of months ago and one of the topics that came up was purchasing product, making things easier for the teachers. And so this is at the district level, you know, and it's a a team of administrators. And so I asked the question, so how many products do you provide to the teachers? And they said they were at 84 apps. What? Oh, my gosh. And I said, okay, so how many of them are used regularly? Which, of course, all eyes turn to the IT director. And so he looks and he says, about 20 of them, but we we require those, you know, they, they those have to be used. So I'm like, okay, so you have 60 plus apps that are optional. And I said, and how many of those do you support? And one of the administrators said, absolutely, we support all of them. And I said, no, 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 not, not as in we encourage you to use them. I said, how many of those do you actually support? The IT director said, he started laughing and he said, so you understand the problem. And I said, yeah, that's the point I'm getting to. I said, adopting them in a school district is no different than adopting them on your iPhone or your Android. You just keep downloading them. And then one day you got six pages of apps and you're still using the same three on the first page. I said, so at some point you got to cut your losses and you've got to start asking your teachers, what do you want? What do you like? What are you using? And so it was it was an interesting conversation, you know, because they had not really thought of it that way. They just assumed if someone said, boy, I wish there was a way to load my grades faster. And then someone came in selling the world's greatest grade app. They were like, oh, that must be the solution. We'll buy it. And then the IT director says, well, the grade app we have doesn't even go with our system because it doesn't meet our security requirements. So they can load everything in there, but then they've still got to go manually load it into our system. And I'm like, okay, so that's not really helping the process. And the whole reason we were having this discussion was there's a, a merger going on among districts, and they were talking about the idea of sharing enterprise licensing. And so the purpose of my taking them down this pathway was you got to clean this up first and figure this out before you start adopting and getting with others. And then you're going to have a couple hundred apps that nobody's using. But I think that's probably indicative of a lot of districts and even in higher ed where at the enterprise level, you just assume people are going to use it and you put it out there and then you say, hey, there was a problem. We bought you a solution. We can't help it if you're not using it because we gave you one not really understanding all of those pieces. And I think for our listeners, for many of them, when you're when you're working 
boots to the ground, you've all experienced that where someone said to you, here's this, there's no training on it. You don't really understand why you have it, but it's there. And then we don't really want to hear about that problem anymore because we purchased a solution. And so that makes it kind of a double-edged sword because not only are you kind of forced to adopt it or use nothing, but you also get just a little bit grumpy about the fact that someone made a choice for you without really mm-hmm. asking you about it. Yeah. I think that's the difference where you're also bringing in that you're really representing their voice. And that is so important in a startup with three people, you know, major organization with thousands of people in a district where they're privately funded, publicly funded, all of those people still need a voice. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. It's like that story really resonates with me because yeah, every every single classroom teacher that we have interviewed through the course of our work has gone outside of the system in one way or another to acquire materials or use <laughs> something that is not, you know, like being used by the district, you know, like we've done work with Khan Academy, for example, like that is very grass grassroots product that teachers and students were like seeking out. And now, of course, you know, they have partnerships with school districts and what have you. But it really was one of those things that people were using outside of the ecosystem that their schools and school districts had sort of designed for them. Right. Also, why like Almost every teacher you talk to has used teachers pay teachers in like one way or another. Right. And it's just like (laughs) they're seeking they're seeking thing. They're seeking like like autonomy in their decision making, as well as Mm -hmm. kind of like being able to support the things they want to do as an educator. And sometimes, yeah, someone at the IT level or administrative level making those decisions for you, that's not necessarily going to fulfill like quite what you want or what you want to be doing in your classroom. And also like oftentimes like at the district level, they're making like these decisions and it's got to serve everybody in a way rather than kind of like the niche and specific things that a teacher wants to do in their individual classroom. And yeah, like you see a lot of like waste happen as a result, right? basically like a whole learning management system sometimes go unused <laughs> because yep. the teacher is like trying to find other ways. Like, I, well, I just do everything in Google Docs and you're just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you find out you're paying for a giant file cabinet. You know, I love right. when, when teachers say, oh, well, I just upload everything into the LMS and I'm like, okay. And they're like, oh no, that's all I do. I, that's just where I keep stuff. Yeah. That's where <laughs> I keep the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I think I fall into that category, actually. That's where my students get my get their get like the files that I have for them. It's like go in the yeah. files folder. Yeah, you're like go oh, and I have a syllabus that. up there. Yep. Yeah, because um, it's not it's not promoted. It's not discussed about the benefits. It's not it's not approached in the right way. We worry so much. You read this all the time about technology replacing us and AI replacing us. And then at the same time, when we have something, we don't know how to use it. So it does start to replace us in one respect because they keep building it smarter and better to compensate for the fact that we're not using it in the right way. When you think about Siri and Alexa and, and all of these kinds of things, they adapt to us. Why? Because we we can't figure out how to do something. So we ask the same question over and over. So we're we're kind of our own worst enemy in this space And without someone really uh, posing the voice for us, it makes it really, really difficult. And when you're in a large district where there are so many voices and so many situational issues, it just becomes really hard to to get something to rise to the top without this type of structure and help in really identifying what's important. Yeah. And I don't want to entirely put the onus on, let's say, like administrative bodies that have to make these kinds of decisions. Oh, I mean, sure. I think it's, it's also an issue at basically like the product developer level, too, where I think sometimes like one, I've never met a teacher who is not 100 percent more busy than they should be. Right. <laughs> like right. they're just like incredibly busy people. But then it's like there's so many products out there that require training 
or what have mm-hmm. you. And it's like, when exactly are they supposed to do that training? It like demands so much of like your free time for these already kind of dedicated people who are like giving up so much of like their time, their personal finances for a lot of them, right? And like buying their students materials. And then like for a product to get introduced in their environment and be like, oh yeah, you have to do this training to like use it in the right way. It's like, forget it. Nobody wants to do that. And I think part of that is like a lack of understanding at the product development level too, about like, you know, when people are like designing an innovation, they're just like, oh my gosh, people are going to love this. Like they're going to want to do the training (laughs) for it. And I'm like, just see what somebody's school day is like. And you're going to be like, oh my gosh, how are they possibly going to do that? And I think that's what's like an important part of like our job is like elevating those kinds of experiences that people have on the day-to-day so that they can understand. If you're asking anybody for even like 30 minutes of time, you're just not going to get it unless you have a really compelling reason for them to basically invest, right? And this, it's like, I think there is that lack of understanding, especially when you're excited about your own product and you're like, or even (laughs) as an investor, you're excited about something that's being developed that's like, feels really innovative. It's like, well, you do have to think about basically the ecosystem in which it's going to land as well as the context, the teacher and student context in which it's going to land because there's a lot of failed education products out there and it's not because they're, it's not because they're bad a lot of the times. It's because they just haven't been able to get traction because of like some of the ways that they're designed or there was a failure of understanding context. There was a failure of understanding like that relationship between like buyers and users, et cetera, or like an inability to understand how it might have to scale up into like different kinds of environments. So yeah, I really think those sort of like contextual sort of insight that we can bring to the table is is just like really useful, especially for people who aren't experiencing the classroom day to day. And for our business and, and uh, you know, equity listeners and all of our people who are non-educators, I know this sounds like an interesting piece to understand that teachers are busy and that they don't have time to learn new things that would make their life easier, et cetera. But I want you to think about this the next time you get an invitation for a webcast and you look at it and you think, boy, I really want to go to this webinar. I really want to go to this seminar. You know, it's online. It's it's so exciting. It's exactly what I want to learn. And you look at your calendar and you think, oh, you know, I'm going to have to give up an hour to go to this. You'll notice now many people who are offering webinars and and online venues have the ability for you to register and receive the recording. And the reason for that is people stopped registering because they're too busy. They couldn't fit the time in to learn the one thing that they really wanted to learn. So for example, if there's a webinar on sales and you're thinking, boy, I really need to up my sales in my company or my small business, my startup, I really need to know this, but I cannot give up an hour on Thursday. So you wouldn't go to it. They realized that. So they said, okay, sign up for it. We'll send you a different link and we'll give you the recording after the fact. Why is that? It's because you've made the decision that even though it means a lot to you, it can't fit into what you're already doing, what you've already chosen to take on for the week. That's where teachers are at right now. That's where districts are at. That's where administrators are at. You know, administrators are looking for fast solutions because it's one less thing they have to worry about and they've got other things to worry about. We're all in the business of trying to have continuous improvement and we're always in the business of trying to have better outcomes from that's our students, our clients, our customers, whoever that may be. But we cut corners sometimes because of time, because of commitments, because of where we're at in certain other projects. And so this is really a conversation, not just for educators, but for everyone to understand that a little investment in time and working with someone like Substantial allows you the bigger picture, the bigger vision, the better planning that you can do as a result of having really key feedback of what people want and how they want it and when they want it. So for those of you that that don't come from the education background, just shift this and think of this from a business approach. You know, 
what makes the most sense for you now and what makes the most sense for you in, in six months. This helps you figure that out. And I think that is so important because the world is moving faster and faster. We're living in a more hybrid situation in everything that we do. And so it's becoming harder and harder to figure out what the target is because the target is constantly moving. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree with that. And I'm, I think one thing that I want to say about, you know, those who are kind of like in the development space is just that I think oftentimes like when they're thinking about engaging with like human-centered design or just like UX design in general, it's to validate some of the decisions that they're already making. Like, let's say you're designing like a courseware product or something like that. You already have an idea of how it's going to work and you just want to test it with users to make sure they can use it. I often think that's too late in the process. Like they, if you are not doing some sort of like foundational or generative research to understand people's context first, you're really missing the boat on like, a lot of potential problem solving and areas that you might be able to kind of innovate on, right? So for example, just like seeing what problems exist, I basically work in the post-secondary space and it's like, you'd be shocked at how many students kind of just like do everything on their phone, including like mm-hmm. writing their papers, mm-hmm. right? And um, yep. I do a lot of stuff in Miro, which is kind of like a visual whiteboarding tool. I had a student like showing up to every class just with his phone, doing mural in his phone. And I was like, oh my gosh, I could never, the screen is not big enough, but he was just like a pro. And so basically you don't have to be a designer for Miro to kind of understand that context. You could be designing a completely mm-hmm. different product, but just understanding like the context of how students might use technology. What are the things they're thinking about these days? What are the things like they're interested in? What does their day look like? There could be a lot of different ways that could result in ideas that could like make your product or service better if you just basically kind of understand the context in which they might be interacting with your product. And that means taking your product out of the research. It's like doing research on just understanding the people (laughs) who are going to be (laughs) kind of using things. And then later on, you can always like validate your decisions around your your product. I think that's part of what's important about that cycle that I described earlier is that by the time people want to kind of learn about how somebody's using a product, like sometimes it's too late. Sometimes like mm-hmm. you get to that stage and people are like, why would I even want this? And you've already invested a lot of time in designing and developing that thing. You might've gone down a different path if you kind of sought to understand people's context to begin with, like before your product was even involved. Absolutely. And it reminds me of when electronic textbooks first came out. I remember the first year that they came out, everyone was so excited until they realized that you couldn't do anything in the system. All you could do is read. So for all of us, even when you had a, a you know, actual book in hand, you would write in the margins, you would highlight in there, you know, that's what college students do. And so instantly, Here, all this development money had gone into moving books online and students weren't using them. And then readers came out and readers were like, oh, yeah, you can highlight. You could there's a little note bubble and you can make a comment here. And students were like, why can't I download a textbook into a reader? And the textbook companies went, we didn't build it for that. They didn't understand what the student needed to do, what the student wanted to do. And there's a million examples like that in post-secondary, loads of failures for all the wrong reasons, as you said. So talk to us a little bit about your new book, Closing the Loop, Systems Thinking for Designers, because I really, I love that title, Closing the Loop. I think that's exactly what you're doing in your role and the company's doing, but also the culmination of all your years of experience is really, you've seen what works and what doesn't. And you recognize the potential pitfalls. So tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah. So it's basically created with an audience of designers in mind. So user experience designers or product designers or what have you, or essentially anyone who's like maybe a technologist or works in strategy. And I think even though it's not focused specifically on education as a domain, 
so much of what's in there was informed by my experiences in working as a consultant in the education space um, because of the complexities in that space, right? And you see like other spaces too that have kind of similar complexities, like anytime you're working in like civic design or government or healthcare, these are all like places where like the stakeholders are varied and multidisciplinary. And oftentimes like designers working in those spaces have to kind of be able to navigate all of these different types of decision makers and decision making. So it's meant for people who have some familiarity with the design thinking or human design, human centered design process that I described earlier. And, but need to kind of take a broader lens as to like, who are other stakeholders who you need to be thinking about what does the entire ecosystem look like? What are the system forces that are at play like in these various spaces? So for example, like I called it closing the loop because a typical expression of systems thinking is a causal loop diagram. So it's a form of Mm -hmm. systems mapping where you have these loops that are kind of like reinforcing and like you can kind of see that and this happens in education a lot that yesterday's solutions can oftentimes become today's problems. <laughs> and so I think that's the important aspect of loops being circular is understanding like when you're solving for something, it is going to generate some new problem, like whether you think so or not. And it's just hubris to think it's not. And so being able to anticipate what might happen might actually help you design it better to begin with, or at least be able to respond when things come up. So a core facet of systems thinking, I think, is like really being able to think about and anticipate potential unintended consequences, or at least like radiating effects of your decisions. I think, for example, like your text, your digital textbook example is really good because like there are all sorts of rating effects for that. Not only could students not do what they wanted to do, but it just like students were like, now I can't buy a used book. Like I can't like afford the digital version of this this book (laughs) is meant to go like straight to the publishers. And it's like a lot of like gaming of the system results from that. And also just like, you don't want to be in that position of being like, wow, I didn't know these things were going to happen. (laughs) You want to be able to respond to that quickly or to design something that doesn't have that problem to begin with, right? And I think systems thinking is like methods are kind of like an important thing to engage in as you're kind of designing or developing anything that you think of as a solution. So it's like, it's a method that is really well used in things like organizational change management, as well as things we think about as wicked problems, right? Basically, you can use systems thinking to kind of think about really big issues like climate change, like how how can we come up with a variety of potential solutions that all intersect with each other in a system in order to kind of like think about this incrementally, but also from a multi, there's a term multi-finality perspective because there's multiple ways that you can solve for a problem. So, I mean, a good example of this is like when we're working with the Gates Foundation, oftentimes the subject matter experts and researchers that we work with are like, wait, is this thing that you're working on, this Algebra 1 initiative, is this like their whole strategy? Because you're not going to solve everything with that. And then we're like, oh no, this is like one part of like a vast strategy, like of different ways to potentially chip away at this problem space. And so acknowledging that and also being able to map those things out, I think is like a really important aspect, not just for designers, but anyone who's working in a space that has a great deal of complexity and education is definitely one of those spaces. Well, and I think you you hit it on the head there when you talked about chipping away at a, at a greater problem. No problem stands alone. As much as we like to think it's a single situation, it's really not. It's complex and it affects other things. I think back to, and I always give a little older example because everyone then understands it. But when we decided to take singular sign-on, SSO, as many of you know, you sign in once and you get access to everything that's within the system you've signed into. 
Well, when SSO started, everyone was so excited. It was going to solve a problem. You weren't going to have to remember all those passwords and all those logins. And they were quick to adopt all over, but then found out that many systems couldn't attach to it. We didn't have an extension. We didn't have an add-on. Some add-ons didn't even exist then. So we thought it solved a problem and it caused a problem. Then we got everyone to single sign-on and then it caused a greater problem. People forget their passwords a lot. And suddenly the simplest thing in the world, a help desk became overwrought with people trying to get back into that system. And now they're angry because they can get to nothing. It's all or nothing for this. Nobody expected that. Nobody expected the backlash of SSO. Everyone thought it was going to be the greatest thing ever. We backed off of it in a lot of ways. We still use it in some bigger organizations and bigger structures. But you notice now you have a lot of individual passwords again, a lot of individual logins. It came at a time where it seemed like it was going to make everything better. It actually made things worse for a while. People suddenly realized all the attributes of having all of your things linked in one space and the perils of someone breaking into hacking your system and getting to everything. Lots of things that we never, ever, ever thought about came as a result of that. So anytime you're introducing something and you think it's a singular problem, it's not. There's always connectivity to something. And I I really encourage our startup audience to look at this book because I think when you have a startup, you have a passion and you have an idea or a concept. You may not always have the business background, but more importantly, you may not always test the waters early enough to really determine is what you're doing, what people want or what people need, and would they even look to adopt it? It could be something they need, but they may not want to adopt it. So this is really important. When is your book going to be out? It's out now. It's out now? Okay. February 21st of this year. So yeah, you can find it on Amazon or on my publisher site, Rosenfeld Media. So yeah, hopefully it's of interest to people listening. Terrific. So we're about at the end of our time. Anything else that you want to add today? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of ground. And so, yeah, thank you for your questions. I think this is such a meaningful space and I'm happy to be part of it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And to our listeners, you know, as always, we will provide all of Cheryl's contact information on any place that you attach to get to your podcast. So I want to thank all of you out there for listening to us today. We hope that this information is insightful for you. And we hope that you'll reach out to Cheryl if you have questions. And certainly hope you pick up a copy of her book available now. And until next time, thanks for attending EdTech Speaks and keep learning. Thank you for listening to EdTech Speaks with EdTech strategist Cher Downing. To learn more about the services Downing EdTech and its staff can provide you, find us at www.downingedtech.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to share it. We'd also like to hear from you regarding any suggestions for topics or guests and the value you received from our show. Check back for new podcasts with featured guests at www.downingedtech.com backslash podcast. Thank you.